Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, welcome to OMD Daily, May 7th, 2020. And what happened today? Well, finally, my my, uh, my newsletter went out. The OMD Weekly newsletter goes out on Mondays, but I kind of got delayed. Just all kinds of stuff. No, really, no excuses, really. Just delayed. And it went out... Um, today, at the same day as the new podcast episode with Justin Jackson, so most of the de- most of the delay was actually related to finishing up my report on Trupanion. Um, that was my new investment report for this week, um, and I guess that's generally been where most of my day was spent. Um, I did have a bit of a fiasco where I actually nearly lost the entire report file because. Evernote was giving me technical difficulties, although they did respond pretty quickly by email, even though I don't have a premium account and I'm not eligible for email customer support submissions. But I found a way to get an email in and they actually responded pretty quickly. But yeah, I just had this issue with, for some reason, my Trupanion investment report file was the only one that got corrupt and that was the only one that was not loading. And thankfully, um, just with enough time, I was able to get it. But yeah, that was a bit of a freak up moment I experienced where I thought I lost two weeks worth of work on the research. However, it was a fun day, just filled with a lot of research. And yeah, that led to a successful, not too delayed newsletter going out. And so, yeah, I figured today I'll probably be spending some time talking about Trupanion. Um, so if you're exci- excited to learn more about a new company, that's awesome. If not, then I guess today's episode really won't be for you. Uh, so Trupanion, how would I explain it? It's, I would call it pet insurance, but the company likes to call it medical insurance for pets. And that's because I think they want, the traditional industry of pet insurance has been always relatively, I think, um, limited in what they actually cover. Whereas Trupanion, they have a more um, inclusive, res- inclusive uh, I guess, insurance product that tends to cover more various like diseases or conditions um like i think in the examples like most pet insurance products don't cover any future illnesses even related to pre-existing conditions but trupanion does but i think trupanion and, and all the other pet insurances are the same and that they don't really cover any pre-existing conditions so that's kind of an example but generally yeah so trupanion is a medical insurance for pet product um what I found to be interesting about the company was just how I kind of came across it. So I learned about Trupanion from following a few investors that I've been, I guess, like a fan of in, in a way from their investment style. Like I'm always looking for investors who tend to have a bigger focus on management and who actually believe in um, the value of culture inside a company. And so a few managers who do that are like Brian Barris at... Bears Capital, um, Rob Vanal from RV Investors, uh, Josh Tarasov, 
although I'm not too familiar with Josh's style, but it seems like from the companies that he's spoken about in the past that he does pay a lot of attention to management. And these three people are the people that kind of led me to Trupanion because each of them have a holding in the company. So I got pretty excited and a few of them speak highly of the CEO, Daryl Rawlings, and apparently his shareholder letters are pretty, you know, there's, there's spoken in, there's spoken of in very positive calibers. So I thought, okay, might be worth looking into. And then I heard a, uh, I think it was a podcast interview with, um, Bluegrass Capital, um, Bluegrass Capital is the Twitter handle of the person I follow on Twitter, and he has a very big following on Twitter. And so I also know that he tends to care a lot about management, and he was talking about how Trupanion was one of the few companies where he just read all the shareholder letters, and he was comfortable enough to pull the trigger to invest in the company. So that got me further excited, and so I decided, okay, well, it seems like I should look into the company. And the fact that it was an insurance company was also a bit of a plus because Pet insurance doesn't really sound like a sexy industry, at the, you know, in the least. And so that got me a little excited. Um, and it's really, you know, I don't think many people like to invest in, insu- in insurance companies. There's a few low-cost obvious ones like Progressive and you know, Geico through Berkshire. And I think last time I looked at an insurance company that was pretty interesting was in Denmark where they had a very unique uh I guess like industry situation where you just had a bunch of low cost operators who did not compete with each other. There was no new entrants coming in because of the size of the market and the saturation inside of it. Um, they all had pre- really high retention. Um, but yeah, that was a very interesting situation there. And so I was okay familiar with insurance companies, but also was also aware that many of them aren't really that great of a business to be investing in. Um, but yeah, so I thought this would be a pretty cool opportunity to look into this company. And yeah, the I think the title I used for the report was True Panion, a story of marrying math with love. And that's kind of a play on what Rawlings, the CEO and founder of the company said in I think the 2019 shareholder letter. And it generally is that like, I think a big part of True Panion's story is the culture um, and the kind of whole purpose-driven ethos behind the founder and just all the employees in the company that make the company what it is, as well as the fact that there's a lot of data that I think makes it really hard to, um, I guess, it makes it hard for new entrants to come in, as well as the competitors to really even catch up on the progress that Trupanion has made. So if I were to kind of explain, like the reports are about to be long, I think it's something like 7,000 word report. So I'm trying to think about how I'm going to condense it. This is actually a pretty good training exercise on how to explain a company. But let's see, I'm trying, I'm looking at my report right now. I'm trying to think how we should condense it. So I guess I'll just kind of start with history. So Trupanion, it was founded in the year 2000, so it's 20 years old now. And it IPO'd in 2014. Um, it actually started out in Vancouver, um, but now it's based out in Seattle. And that actually plays I don't know if it's coincidence, but Rawlings likes to s- cite um, a lot of the Seattle success companies like Costco, Amazon. Um, I don't think he cited Microsoft yet, but Starbucks. And 
at, he picks out the elements that of the companies that he likes. Like you know, Starbucks has an element of conscious cap capitalism. Um, I think, and you know, Amazon's just very well known to always be reinvesting, having the flywheel effect that Bezos talks about. Costco has the kind of shared economies of scale that uh, Nicholas Sleep from Nomad Capital has commonly referred uh, to as. And I guess Amazon utilizes Costco's model in that way too, where the general concept of the shared economies of scale is where the company achieves the the benefits of economies of scale, but instead of just pumping up higher um, operating margins, you actually start sharing that with your customers. Um, yeah, and so that's just kind of, or you start sharing that with your employees as well as your customers as well. So they will over time kind of choose to have lower gross, gross margins and then you also choose to have lower um, operating margins as well. So yeah, that's kind of how the company has started. And one piece that you just can't ignore is just why Rawlings started the company. And that's because of his own personal uh, experience where you know they had a dog back when he was a young child and his family couldn't afford to pay for the dog surgery. And so the dog, um, I think, was euthanized uh, because they couldn't pay for the surgery that was like supposed to save the dog's life, I think. I'm not too familiar with it, but it was such a big uh, event for him that he just always had this goal of trying to help other pet owners solve that problem. And so he started a cigar company. And after selling his cigar company, he used the proceeds of all that to bootstrap Trupanion to start with. And then he got, I think, eight investors um, to equally invest $25,000 each into the business. And I think within a few years, he repaid them back $35,000 each for their investment. And then I think later on, as he he thought about uh, scaling Trupanion, he got Maverin Capital, I believe, uh, with Dan Leviton investing into Trupanion as the first VC investor, and then the IPO in 2014. Um, so generally, yeah, like, that's kind of the backdrop of Trupanion, why it started and why Daryl's just so, I guess, obsessed with the mission of the company. And it's, you can tell from reading the shareholder letters that Daryl is really trying to educate the shareholders in a certain way. And I think I see that as a very positive thing because you know, for the CEO, it's in their best interest to educate the shareholders on how to think about the company um, in a very kind of long-term oriented manner and sometimes quote-unquote correctly. And some might look at it saying, oh, you know, that he's kind of trying to create a fake picture of the company by making Trupanion look like a SaaS company. But in effect, makes at least for me it makes logical sense um you rarely see insurance companies talk about the cost of acquisition uh the lifetime value arpu um like the what does arpu stand for i think it's average per unit cost i think i forget what it actually stands for i just you just always end up using arpu as the acronym but anyhow yeah like the average monthly cost um, and so these are all just like metrics that you just hear SaaS companies use for unit economic calculations. And 
when an insurance company uses that. Some people think it's a red flag, some people get excited by it, and so there is kind of that SAS element, I think, that makes Japanian seem a little, I think, frothy for some investors, and that might, that might kind of portray to why they have such a large short position. I think uh, Japan is kind of one of those divisive companies where you have a pretty big institutional ownership of something like 50 some percent of institutional money like i think six institu- institutions account for like this 50 percent ownership of true panion uh with insiders owning about 11 percent and you i think 30 percent of the float is actually has like a short interest as well so yeah like there's definitely a, a big divide there it has a pretty big short interest and there are concerns because um, there really aren't that many pet insurance companies or it's the entire market itself is relatively new. Like there really isn't even a category um, by the regulators for pet insurance. I think there's, they're on like the marine insurance category or something. So it's a relatively underpenetrated industry. Um, I think there's about 20, there's technically 20 brands that compete in the industry, but Two of the 20 own 60%, and the largest is Nationwide's own uh, pet insurance division, which owns about 40% of the market, and Japanian has about 20%. I think maybe around 25% now with the updated numbers. But overall, though, the mark- the overall pet insurance market only is about 1% to 2% penetrated in North America compared to Europe, where the impenetration rate is about 5 to 25%. So, and 5 to 25% because different countries in Europe have different penetration rates. But yeah, even then, we can definitely see that it's lower. So yeah, there's one can be excited about that because, oh, well, look at how large the total addressable market is and look how underpenetrated it is. So when you're a dominant player, there's so much of the pie you can really take for yourself. So that's, I think, the exciting growth story like the compounder element of Trupanion that a lot of investors are excited by but at the same time there's also the question of well why is it so low why is the penetration so low in North America compared to Europe and will North Americans really want to adopt pet insurance and I think that that's kind of the opposing view and there's also the question of regulators where Trupanion has been fined multiple times in the previous years because they didn't really work closely with regulators um, and that's something Daryl Walling's has previously cited as like that was a mistake he made and they're constantly working to rectify that and so i think for investors investing in the company there you have to expect growing pains because as much as trupanion is trying to re-educate the pet owners of what this new pet insurance product is and how it's completely different from what the industry standards were they also have to educate the regulators um on an ongoing basis because if the sector gets bigger then the regulars will need to start paying attention to it as well because, you know, there's something like 200 million pets out in North America. And I think, how oh, I have to look at my industry numbers again. Yeah, so there's around 200 million pets out there. And about 2.4 million currently have pet insurance. So, yeah there's a lot more pets available to get pet insurance if they ever choose to do so. And so that's something the uh, insurer or the regulators should start paying attention to because I think on 
on an annual basis, North Americans spend something like 70 plus billion dollars on their pets. They spend something like $500 million a year on Halloween costumes alone. That's crazy. I had no idea that people spent that much money on pets. I don't really, I have a dog of myself, so I can't really uh, comment on that, but my partner does, and I didn't think she spent a lot of money on her husky, but yeah, it seems like a lot of other pet owners spend a lot of money on a bunch of accessories and all that. So it's not out of the question that people will start spending on pet insurance over time, because I think there's also an increasing amount of people getting pets as you know, society improves, our living standards get better, people have more spare time, um, people are choosing to start families later, people are starting, you know, I think birth rates are declining in countries as well, so, or developed countries as well, as people are choosing, like, do they want to have kids or not? And I think many also, even if they want to have kids, they end up choosing to have a pet first as kind of like a t- trial run or something, even though they're completely different in my opinion. But that's just kind of my two cents on the matter. Um, but if we went back to talking about Trupanion, yeah, so the product is really simple. Um, I said they position themselves as like a SaaS business, and it's because what they really sell is a subscription product. You buy a policy, they Trupanion underwrites it, and effectively just pay the monthly costs for the policy and you can cancel anytime you want I think typically um, the average pet has like a lifetime value of over six years yeah yeah I'd say six years and I believe the monthly retention rate has been around 98% over the last three to four years so that's pretty decent I would say um, it seems that when people tend to get pet insurance, they end up kind of keeping it. And I guess it's one of those things where, unless your circumstances really change financially, it's kind of one of those things where you don't really want to be canceling on it because right now, Trupanion's product seems to be the best value out on the market. And so if you're kind of choosing something, you're not really going to any better product or service. It's more you're kind of giving up on the health insurance part of your pet and it's not really I think an easy conversation or easy internal conversation for people to have like on an emotional level like if you've already decided to get pet insurance for your pet once um, but yeah so generally the business model is relatively simple it's a SaaS model so the way they make money is that they charge a 30% uh, markup on top of the average cost of a pet so Trupanion calculates how much they expect um, an average pet will cost for all the veterinary services, and then they'll just charge 3% on top of it. They call it a cost-plus model. So, for example, if the you know your bulldog will cost um, something like, I don't know, $70, or let's say for easy math, um, yeah, let's just say like they calculate the average cost of the bulldog is going to be something like um, $70 for vet services and they will charge $30 on top and so then they'll ch- your overall monthly fee will be $100 a month and what happens is when the average pet needs to claim and get the vet services then 70% of it will be dedicated to serving uh, that cost and the Trupanion works with the remaining $30 or 
or a 30% to run the business. And their goal is to have a 15% operating margin. So they're really trying to eke out all the costs within that 15%. So yeah, it's kind of, one can say it's kind of tight, but that's nothing new for insurance companies. Like many insurance companies work on single digit profit margins. So that's nothing new there. Uh, what does seem to separate Trepanion though is that they they call themselves the, lower, the lowest cost operator um, among the other pet insurance providers. And the way they can do that is because they're fully vertically integrated in that they have their own underwriting company, they control the brand, they control all the proprietary data, they literally even own the building that the company uh, office is in. Because I think management has said that this will cost this will reduce friction co- uh, frictional operating costs by about like 10 to 20% depending. And that will, I think that allows them to have a slightly higher operating margin than their competitors would. Um, so that can be considered to be one of the advantages that the company has as a lower cost operator, especially for a commodity like product, like insurance. We've seen previous models like Progressive and Geico do well being the low cost operator. But this shouldn't be, I think, mistaken with the fact with um, them being a lower cost product for consumers. They're not. They don't sell the cheapest pet insurance. Actually, the competitors probably have cheaper uh, products out there. What Trupanion promises is the best value product for the money you get. So their insurance policies are actually not the cheapest for some people. And that's kind of because of their next... I would say a big competitive advantage, which is the proprietary data that they have. So Trupanion has been collecting millions of different data streams on all the different pets. You like They're getting specific on you know, zip codes, postal codes, breeds, age, uh, pre-existing conditions, all these small data over the last 20 years of something like, you know, they've had something like 4 million invoices for pets. So they have a chunk of data, and Rawlings has talked about how this data set is something he, it would take him, I think in 2015, he said it would take him 13 years to get the 15 years worth of data that he collected. So it's one of those things I think money just can't buy because you just need time to collect all these years of data. And that's where the math part comes in from, from what I talked about earlier, where they use it to try to get as an accurate pricing level as possible so that depending on you know where you live and the kind of pet you have that your price actually reflects as close to as possible the average cost it would um, the average veterinary cost that you you would you would be expected to incur for your pet over the lifetime that you have the pet for whereas in most cases traditionally they always generalize it and so you would have this case where your pet might not be a high-risk pet, it might not actually cost that much, but you'd end up paying this kind of generalized fee, and then there'd be the opposite for other cases. So there'd be a lot of subsidization of people um, who are receiving fair prices versus the ones who are not receiving fair prices. But yeah, so that's where the data part comes in, where you just try to get as much of an accurate pricing as possible. And so that's why some people, like a bulldog, might have... You know, you might pay $100 a month using Trupanion, but you might pay $70 a month with another provider. But you should know that you're getting the most value because Trupanion covers 90% of 
however that uh, that expense comes out to be and they also have direct pay and automation which i think they're the only ones that do that because traditional pet insurance products apparently the way it works is even if you have insurance you still have, you still as you as a pet owner still have to pay for the um, vet expense yourself and then you have to wait weeks for the reimbursement to actually come in to you so then you end up having a period where you know you have cash outflow and then you have to wait for the inflow and when you have some expenses ranging up to apparently some range up to like forty thousand dollars and so when that happens it makes it really difficult for the pet owner to kind of fork over that kind of money but Japanian has this system where they implement uh, something called Troop Express inside the vet software and that practically allows the vets to automatically receive the payment directly from Trupania. So the pet owner only has to pay 10% and that actually helps them financially. Um, and that also helps the vet too because that's where I think the value is on like a win-win scale where the vet can also offer or suggest the best plan, quote-unquote plan A, which probably is like the most expensive one as well, where it's kind of in the best interest of the pet to receive plan A and also for the vet because they probably make more money by doing the more expensive treatment service. And so Japanian kind of allows that to become possible, I guess, in a, in a less friction, frictioned way as possible. Um, but yeah, so there's that kind of win-win situation. And that's also kind of how Japanian gets a, a lot of their customers. Uh, it's generally from referrals from vets um, who are educated on Trupanian's products by their own internal sales team called Territory Partners, who I think there's like 130 of them. They visit all these vets throughout the, um, the continent, so North America, the North American continent. Um, and yeah, so they build, a rela- they build relationships with these vets for over years and they get tr- you know, they went over their trust and they constantly try to educate the vets on why Trupanian's product's good. And I think there's something like 90, no, sorry, around 10,000 vets, veterinary hospitals in their network now. And there's something like 28,000, I think, out in the market. So still a ways to go. Um, but yeah, that's how they end up getting the referrals because the vets trust the product. And, you know, for a vet, you want to recommend products that you believe in because if it doesn't work out then the vet might lose her business as well so there's a kind of kind of that win-win and trust-based system there as well and the vets do not receive any kickback or referral fees so you know that they're referring it pretty close to just focus on like the product's value proposition alone so yeah that makes the business that kind of was like the higher level of like why this business was interesting for me um it seemed like Japanian was the only one that has this kind of large in-person sales team. Um, and yeah, they're the second largest player in the market. It's a growing market. Um, they seem to have this advantage in the fact that they're the lowest cost operator. They have this data side. Um, they also provide the best value. So there's a bit of that shared economies of scale factor happening. And then, oh, I think it's the best part. Well, I take a sip of water. Yeah, so the best part is actually on the people side. Right, so yeah, like I said, 
the CEO was kind of what attracted me to the company. What was, okay, I'll start with what was disappointing. What was disappointing was that Rawlings only has a 5% ownership in the company. Maybe I've been spoiled by, you know, look, reading about the outsiders or um, being such a, you know, Buffett fan for so long. But, you know, I just expected, uh, shouldn't he have 20% ownership if he really cares so much about the company? But, you know, insiders as a whole have about 11% in, of ownership in the company. So I guess it's, you know, still material. Um, and then, but yeah, so how should I tackle this? So generally what I do is I look at the proxy statement when I look at management. And proxy statement and shareholder letters are kind of the two big ones for me. Um, the annual report, I don't really enjoy reading annual reports as much as part of my investment process. I'll still read through it uh, because it's important. But I think if the management it does a good job of educating the shareholders through his letters um, and through the proxy statements, then... For me, that's kind of a positive signal on its own, but I digress. Um, so yeah, when I look at the proxy statement, I kind of immediately go look at ownership to see alignment. And then I'm curious on compensation, like how are they compensated? And honestly, I was pretty, I think I felt everything was pretty reasonable. Um, you know, it's a billion dollar market company, but all the C-suite executives no one makes over three hundred thousand dollars in salary um the range is between 200 to 300 and i think they all agreed to have a flat 300 um, as of 2020 and a good chunk of obviously their pay is related to long-term bonuses um i also did like seeing that the short-term bonus was not this outrageous amount like the short-term cash bonus can be a maximum of 20 percent of salary so sixty thousand dollars is not a you know not a you know it's not a little amount of money but it's com compared to other i think public companies it's not the outrageous like 100 percent of your salary that i'm so used to seeing so that was pretty um yeah i thought that kind of modesty was pretty positive for me and then when i looked at how the long-term incentives kind of amounted to i think the total compensation for all six executives amounted to about 1.1 1.2 million dollars on average um, I don't think anyone made more than 1.3. And the highest paid was actually not the CEO. It was the chief people officer and general counsel of the company, which I thought was also a very positive sign where the CEO didn't you know, feel like they have to get paid the most. And Rawlings actually noted how because he has such a big equity ownership in the company, he didn't feel like he needed to take such a big um, equity bonus as well, which once again was a nice positive point. The way they calculated their uh, long-term equity payout was through a two-year CAGR of the intrinsic value. Now they don't they don't share how they calculate intrinsic value. Only that it's primarily based on the subscription business, which is kind of the bread and butter of Trupanion. And the 2019 letter actually goes through in depth on how they create their internal DCF model. And I use that as a proxy to kind of give me an idea of how they seem to seem to think about their intrinsic value. And I felt all the inputs were quite reasonable or the way they've kind of structured the formulas. Um, and I do like the fact that they use a, the two-year CAGR on how the intrinsic value has grown. I would prefer longer, but I can also understand because the company hasn't really hit scale yet. Um, they're supposed to hit scale once they 
get past 650, when it's like the 650 to 720,000 uh, pets enrolled mark, they're currently, I think, just past 600,000, 640,000. So they just haven't hit scale yet at the point. And they only just started having a um, positive <laughs> operating margin, I think, in 2015, I think. So maybe it's too much to expect them to have something like a you know, to use a four-year, um, but we'll see how that evolves over time. But yeah, so I think it was still reasonable to see that they use a two-year Kagers for their intrinsic value. I've never seen a company use that before for their compensation. And what gets more interesting is how you have to increase the intrinsic value um, by more than 10% for them to start being eligible for the equity bonus. And then there's kind of a ladder chart that they show and so i think you know there's one for 10 percent, 20 percent, and then 30 percent. and it's not that the bonuses are outrageous either um they calculated that their interesting value was up you know the two-year was 24 percent um the two-year k was 24 percent and you know that led to oh i think eight hundred thousand dollars of equity compensation which i didn't think was that much you know maybe i've been desensitized by seeing like $40 million equity compensations in other public companies. But I thought this was relatively very reasonable. And what's also refreshing was how they didn't take all the equity compensation for the executive management alone. I think, so the way they calculated it is that they have a percentage and they allocate it into an equity pool for all employees. And the C-suite took 30, about 36% of the pool, and the rest was actually given out to the employees. Um, they have a mix of like kind of new hire rewards and kind of year-end bonuses, but to read about how they constantly share it with um, their Japanian teammates, I think was very refreshing. And then they, you know, kind of talking to the culture side where Daryl Rawlings, like he, I think is one of the few CEOs who constantly mentions the value of culture and the value of his um, employees and his shareholder letters. Like I think in every one that I've read, he continuously emphasizes why he invests in people, why he believes talent is, isn't so important. And I think in the 2018 letter, he kind of goes through the last five years and every year as an improvement, the improvement point for every year includes at least one related to people where he talks about how he was a roadblock or how um, the organization structure being flat was actually not beneficial because it lacked accountability um, and how they fixed it and or how he did a really poor job firing people who were just not the right people on the team and how they end up thinking about how to you know, acquire talent better or how to incentivize people better. And I think in the most recent one, he talks about how the new problem he's trying to tackle is how do you measure um, performance of people more accurately and so he's constantly thinking of ways to, I think, improve performance within his company. And he understands that his people are the ones that are going to make the company some, something completely, totally unique. So I think that's definitely a positive sign. Um, I think the territory partners who are kind of the face of the company, I think they make up nine of the 25 most highest paid employees inside the company. That's including executives. And so if we took out six from the C-suite, that's half really of the highest paid people are the ter the territory partners which is also very refreshing to see because i think that kind of shows proper um alignment of incentives as well in the f 
form of compensation. But it also seems like they kind of continuously reinvest um, into the company as well. Like they have Trupanion University, which I think they invested something like three million dollars annually to train employees, um, and they have all you know all kinds of benefits. Obviously, like daycare and dog walking because they have two hundred dogs in the office for I think four hundred plus employees. Even the way they select employees, like they continuously focus on having people. That have an alignment in mission and purpose. Like I think seventy percent of the employees came from an animal health background, so they continue to try to recruit people who are like ex vets or people who are somewhat just passionate about anim- um, animals themselves. So there's all this kind of stuff that's I think aligned with the culture of the company, which I find is very impressive. Um, yeah, and then there's all like the small things that I kind of go in through in the actual research report. But yeah, overall. This was a very, it was a lot of fun researching the company. Um, it's, you know, it's a unique business. It's, I think, the opportunity excited me for sure because it allows, you know, it's kind of the green field where the company has the ability to compound over time. It's also exciting to see a CEO who, I don't know, maybe just does a great job selling himself and shrouding my eyes by, uh, you know, quoting John Malone, quoting Toby Lockyer, and, you know, quoting all the other outsider CEOs, and, you know, maybe he just knows to hit all the right buttons. Like, I think I heard how uh, Rawlings even goes to the Berkshire Hathaway meeting to try to get the right shareholders to invest in Trupanion because he believes that people who are, you know, Buffett fans are going to be able to think long-term as well, which is not wrong. And I think that's very smart tactically. But I think people can be skeptical of like, oh, is he just too good? Does he know all the right things to say too well? There definitely is a risk of that, for sure. I can't deny. Um, But I think the company is definitely well-positioned. I think they are the leaders in the market. Even though Nationwide has a 40% share, I think when push comes to shove, a homogeneous product wins out over time. I think they're the ones that survive because like for Nationwide, their pet insurance team is just a small subsidiary that they, I don't think would get the full attention that Trupanion would give to their own company. Um, like when your company, all they do is just one thing, like that's the only way to win. I'm, I'd rather bet on that, that team. And I think if I looked at the cash basis, uh, like just like the, you know, how they kind of calculate free cash flow, the company is trading at something like a 4.5% yield. So I consider that to be quite reasonable. And so the valuation itself was interesting. Um, the large short interest does bother me a little. And I am I am very curious on how people will view pet insurance going forward. It's just one of those things where I just don't have as much, I think, certainty on in terms of the stickiness of the product because... It just feels like a discre- discretionary and nice to have. Um, I do think it's super valuable. I think if I got a dog, I'd probably get pet insurance for, the, for my own dog. Um, but, you know, I, I can't really base myself as, like, the average customer either. So, you know, even though the monthly retention numbers show, like, 98%, I'm still not sure. Um, but I think it, it really does have the ch- potential to become a very exciting company. Um, I think the company's done an exceptional job in really focusing on culture, and I think the leadership team is there to make 
make it succeed. And yeah, it's something that I think as a company, I'll definitely look to do further research into as well and try to measure how they kind of extract value from their people on. Um, but yeah, I definitely recommend you, if you have some free time, um, to read through my report. And yeah, hopefully that's valuable for you. And hopefully this was interesting for you as well. But yeah, that was kind of how I spent most of the day, just learning about the company. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day.